I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part two in the series, Practicing the Way, Community. To us, the notion of the church as a family sounds sweet and sentimental, but when Jesus first proposed the idea, it was scandalous and offensive. When we unpack why, it's as radical an idea today as it was in the first century. There are two basic expressions, if you will, of how we do this thing called Van City Church. The first is this, the thing that we're doing right now, the Sunday gathering, uh, and we've been doing this particular thing for more than three years now. And here's an interesting fact for you. Statistically, most most church plants do not pass the one-year mark. So here we are. We did it. We did it. We bucked the odds. Um, On a Sunday evening, every single Sunday for the last few years and, and presumably into the foreseeable future, we come together as a family. We worship, which is what we were just doing. Um, by both singing songs and giving finances, taking communion, all different forms of worship. We learn from the scriptures, something we're about to do. We take the bread and the cup of communion, like I was just saying. And all those things are things that Jesus told us to do. And there are things that his disciples have been doing for upwards of really 2,000 years now, which is insane. We're participating in a very long, ongoing tradition. It's beautiful. Um, So that's one expression of church, this Sunday. After Sunday... Dozens of people, people from here in Vancouver, people from Portland, people from Longview and Camas and Washougal and Woodland and Battleground, um, they gather up in homes, specifically around dinner tables, and they talk about their lives. How was your week? How was your week? They talk about how to best follow Jesus. They pray for one another. They agree and they disagree. They make mistakes. They repent. They apologize. It's messy, it's awkward, and it's often beautiful. And these groups have been meeting really for much longer than we've had a Sunday gathering. In fact, a year before we had a Sunday gathering, we were training and starting uh, small groups that we call Van City Communities. My particular Van City Community has been together for four and a half years now. Um, My son Beck was an infant when we first started, and my daughter Isla wasn't even born yet, which means that neither of my kids can remember a time without our particular community. And it occurred to me this week as I was writing this teaching uh, how accurately and succinctly my kids express the community experience. Um, Firstly, they love it. I'll just be quite frank about that. They love it. And this is not some kind of idealism or romanticism that I'm trying to sell you guys on community. These jokers love it. They full on cry if they get sick and can't go or something like that. And on Tuesday morning, I kid you not, they start cheering. It's community night, community night. They get pumped. They cannot wait to see these other kids in the community. They can't wait to see the adults in the community. Uh, Tab, who's in my community, he's been chasing my son Beck and tickling him and laughing with him since before he could talk. Of course, Beck looks forward to seeing Tab. Mike held my daughter Isla when she was a newborn. Vanessa sits every week and listens to Beck patiently explain paleontology, and she listens to Isla describe the events of her day in arduous three-year-old speak. And they, my kids, they didn't pick this group. They didn't pick these people. They have some things in common with the other kids and other things decidedly less so, but they love it. In fact, I asked my community to send me some pictures of it. Here they are watching a movie at some point. This was years ago, I guess. I have no idea. Um, here's another one. This is roasting uh, marshmallows. I believe this was just a little while ago, a summer tradition at the Tabanowski house. 
There's another one here. I don't have any idea what's going on here. Um, it looks like some kind of wrestling match has broken out. I think Mac, Mike is trying to attack me there. And the other kids, notice, they just start fighting each other. They see violence happening, and they're like, let's go. And then my favorite part is in the background, Patrick's just pushing the swing like he doesn't care. But this kind of thing happens all the, time, all the time. Who can be bothered? I'll just keep pushing the swing. The point is, my kids love our community, and they hate it. Beck says mean things to his cousin Remy, and then he has to apologize because we make him, and then he just does it again. Someone hits someone else all the time. An entire room will start crying if you leave that room for a second. And we'll never know the truth about what transpired in that room because the stories don't match. Alliances have already been formed. Conspiracies are on the rise. You've got Isla and Posey who fight endlessly about who had what toy first and whether or not it matters. And frankly, I've gotten to the point where I'm just, I just answer them, who cares? They're like, no, I had, you know, they're after justice. I'm like, but who cares, really, you know? This is me at my, my low point, by the way. Um, they get grumpy. These are my kids. They get grumpy and rude with the adults who are attempting to, in some cases, be nice to them, in other cases, trying to correct and corral them. They get tired and short-tempered and mean-spirited. Community always lasts well after bedtime, which is by design we choose to do that. But, you know, you pay, a, you pay the piper. And then, at the end of it all, they don't want to go home. <laughs> they don't want to leave. You have to fight with them about leaving the place. And then the next Tuesday, they're thrilled about it all over again. It's like the emotional experience of an entire year for an adult in community compressed into one single evening every single time. So from our kids, our community is a part of our family. And I don't mean that in the like sweet or sentimental sense, though it, it is that. But for them, it just is. That's always been a rhythm and routine of our family. And the, the spectacularly oscillating experience of my kids is, for me, a clarifying reminder of how nearly all of us navigate this idea of community. Last week, we began a series of teachings and practices based on the idea of community in the Jesus-centric sense. If you missed it, do me a favor, go back and listen to last week's podcast. That was kind of a foundation for the work ahead. Because the whole idea of community, why we talk about it so much and why we're talking about it proper for a few weeks, is that community is unmistakably and really inarguably at the center of following Jesus. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to do it in a family of misfits. Today, talking about the church as a family is often done for kind of like sugary appeal. It sounds tender, it sounds affectionate, and it can be, but when Jesus first proposed the idea of his disciples becoming a family, it was actually radical and outrageous. So let's look at a story in Mark chapter 4 that we've already unpacked in detail in Matthew's biography of Jesus. Tonight we're going to look at it from another angle for the purposes of this teaching. You guys all right? Yeah. You ready to get to work? Yeah. Great, thank you. Mark chapter 4. Let's read beginning with verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside... And they sent someone in to call him. In, in context, Jesus is in a house. He's teaching some people. His family gets there, and they're like, hey, someone go get Jesus. There's a crowd and all that. Verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him, people listening to him, and they told him, hey, your mothers and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? Jesus asked. Now, to be clear, this question would have seemed as silly then as it does now. Who is your mom? Your mom is your mom. 
Mary. We just told you, she's outside. There's no question as to whose Jesus' family is. But as usual, Jesus is up to something provocative. Look down at verse 34. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now notice, in context, those seated in a circle around him are the students of Jesus, the people that he's teaching, his apprentices, or what the New Testament often calls his disciples. This is Jesus' inner circle, part of what we would call his community. But to Jesus, they're not just students, not just insiders, not just community. They are his family. And that idea is by no means unique to this passage. Think about it like this. Jesus famously referred to God himself as what? Father, right. Sorry, it's hard to hear up here with the fans. And if I step in front of one, it sounds like this. You guys hear that? Okay. Yes, Father. And he refers to his apprentices as brothers and sisters. In Greek, it's actually the word adelphoi, which is literally a masculine form of the word sibling. Thus, older translations typically render that word brethren, but that phrasing is painfully archaic. And in context, the word refers to men and women. In this case, it's a mixed-gendered group of siblings referred to with a masculine noun, but without intending to speak to only the males in the group. It's kind of the Greek equivalent of hey, guys or even hey dudes or something like that, which is why in most translations, the term has been updated to the more contextually accurate brothers and sisters. And that word, Adelphoi, brothers and sisters, shows up all throughout the New Testament some 342 times. It's easily the predominant term used to describe the relationship between those who follow Jesus, brothers and sisters. In other words, family. Talking about people in your life as family is to us Uh, sweet-sounding, sentimental. It sounds like a trailer from one of those Fast and the Furious movies, which I still to this date have not seen a single one of those things. I understand they have to do with cars. The cars drive places. Stuff blows. Am I describing it? Have you, Olivia, are you into those? Have you seen them? All of them? Are you excited about Hobbs and Shaw? That I will see because I'm quite interested to see the rock lasso a helicopter with a chain. (laughs) I saw that. I don't usually watch trailers, you know, because of spoilers, but I saw that and I was like, oh yeah, in. I'm in for that. Is there more of that in the franchise prior? Okay, let's talk after this. <laughs> anyway, I have picked up on the fact that there's a lot of family talk. Family, you know, Vin Diesel, family. <laughs> That's sorry. Wow, easily the biggest laugh at Van City. Make a note if you want to get a laugh, Cam. Next time you teach, Van, Vin City impression. Van City, Vin Diesel, Vin City, <laughs> Vin City. <laughs> Anyway, let's get back on track. In Jesus' context, the idea of a community as a family wasn't sweet-sounding, wasn't sentimental-sounding. It was actually pretty radical and subversive. So I'm going to try to explain why by framing all of this story with a bit of context. There's two aspects of first-century Jewish culture that we need to unpack to understand why this is radical and subversive. The first is the difference between, and bear with me, I'm going to explain all this, the difference between collectivist and individualist societies. So sociologists describe these two ideas as strong group or collectivist and weak group or individualist societies. And the word in which the world in which Jesus lived was deeply collectivist or strong group 
society. So you're thinking, what the heck does that mean? Here's a definition from someone much smarter than me that defines the collectivist approach to society. In a strong group or collectivist society, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the group and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with group norms and only if the action is in the group's best interest. The group has priority over the individual member. Now, this kind of culture seems terribly archaic based on a quote like that. It's still really well represented throughout the world in places like Korea, the Arabic world, parts of Africa to this day, really most places beyond our kind of Western society. In the Western world, we have what sociologists call the individualist or weak group societies. It's the other way around. In the individual society, individualist society, the individual takes priority over the group. The desires and happiness of the individual always take precedence over the group. And we, as a general rule, act in accord with our own best interests. So for many, if not most of us, the strong group collectivist idea sounds at best weird and at worst it sounds absurd or even oppressive to some people. And the dichotomy between the two widens as Western culture continues to evolve. In the West, we're seeing a rise in what's called tribalism, which le is less of like a community of unified belief and it's more of an angry mob of what we are against. And this is made manifest in things like outrage culture, takedown culture, the word police. It's an intense us versus them boundary with an emphasis on this idea of the right side of history as defined by a very vocal subculture of people. And that's not the same thing as a collectivist culture. In a collectivist culture, you actually have typically very clearly defined gender roles and gender paradigms. You have ongoing interfamily roles on throughout you know, adulthood and on. You have honor and shame, concepts that are totally alien to us. You have ideas that seem foreign or even alien and bizarre to the average American. You know, you've probably picked up on the way that these societies tend to collide uh, from popular culture. Uh, one that came to mind recently was watching like Freddie Mercury's family dynamic in Bohemian Rhapsody. It's coming from a strong group culture into an individualistic society. The rom-com uh, The Big Sick uh, dealt with similar concepts. There's an upcoming film called Blinded by Light that's completely about a British teen of Pakistani descent who's torn between the honor of his family and his love for the severely American music of Bruce Springsteen. There's my trailer for that film. I bring all that up just to highlight the fact that the individualistic way of life that we take for granted was unheard of in Jesus' day and really is still unheard of in much of the world. In the world that Jesus knew, your primary concern was for the family not the individual in the family. In Jesus' world, your entire identity was inseparable from your immediate family. So if you remember the story of Jesus going back to his hometown where he's scorned there, the people of Nazareth identified Jesus by saying, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother Mary? Aren't his brothers and sisters still with us? So in other words, Jesus' world was collectivist. It was a very strong group mentality. Now, the second mentality you need to understand about first century Jewish life was that the idea of a family was defined by the father's bloodline, not by marriage. So you may have noticed that in the Bible, there's often characters who are referred to as something like Simon, son of Jonah. Uh, this is called a patrilineal culture. 
So there's no surnames, there's just son of so-and-so. My son Beck would be Beck, son of Joshua. So if Beck was seeking the soul stone, you know, he would be greeted by this spectral phantom of Johann Schmidt who would say, Beck, son of Joshua, or whatever. And I will teach him not to do that. Don't seek the soul stone. So anyway, in a patrilineal culture, your spouse was not part of your family proper. They, the bride would join the tribe of the groom. And marriage typically wasn't about romantic love or about intimate personal connections. It was typically about family arrangements for the good of the tribe as a whole. So ordinary siblings in the ancient world were thought to have the primary bond and the most important relationship in your life. This still happens sometimes today, but today we just call it creepy. In the ancient world, it was a relationship based on the good of the family at personal expense of the individual and localized within the tribe and the bloodline specifically. Now, in this story that we just read tonight, Jesus refers to his community, meaning these are just his students, his followers, and his friends. Most of them are well outside of his tribe, um, and he refers to them as his brothers and sisters, meaning he's saying these people, the people in his community, some of them he's close with, some of them he's only just met, very few of them are related to him at all. They're not in his tribe. And he's saying that his primary bond and most important relationship is not blood, but these people, his community. That was a very radical idea. And it wasn't because Jesus expected his community to function like a family. That was kind of a very old idea, actually. From page one of the Bible, you're presented with a deeply relational, familial, familial portrait of God himself. On page one, God announces, let us make mankind in our own image. And scholars have debated whether the us is his like divine counsel, what we might call is angels or angelic beings, or is he talking to the other members of the Trinity? We don't really know, but really either way, the, that story reveals that God is by default relational and that what he does is relational. One of my professors, Gary Brashear, says, God is a family who makes families, meaning that we exist at all is an outworking of God's overflowing relational love, and we were created for relational love. So the idea that the people of God were in some sense a family was not the radical aspect of Jesus' teaching. What's radical is that Jesus doesn't define his family by blood, but in his language, by whoever does God's will which is incredible given how intensely defined the lines between Jews and Gentiles had been drawn in Jesus' culture. But Jesus is here saying that his true family is open to Jews and to Gentiles. The family of God, in other words, is multi-ethnic. This is one idea among several that, quite frankly, got Jesus killed. In fact, later in the story, Jesus goes ham on some corruption that he finds in the temple. And in his anger, he quotes the prophet Jeremiah saying, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And this was Jesus condemning the temple establishment that shut out all non-Jewish people from God's presence. That kind of talk was one of the things that got Jesus killed. But it wasn't just Jesus' idea of a multi-ethnic family not defined by blood that was so radical. There was another, even more subversive dimension of this teaching. Not only does Jesus extend family beyond his father's bloodline, he elevates that family to the place of primary importance. 
Remember, Jesus said that whoever does, does God's will was his mother and brother and sister. That was a scandalous thing to suggest, especially since Jesus was the oldest living male in his family line. So he was thought of to be responsible for the leadership in his family. And here he's saying that his family is part of a much bigger family and that that family is the most important family in his life. And if you're thinking, I'm, I'm kind of reaching for all this, just look at what Jesus starts to teach elsewhere. He says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have, what does that mean? For it means, for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Which sounds hyperbolic and extreme, and it is, quite frankly. We know that Jesus taught consistent nonviolence, and that later he will specifically command Peter to lay down the sword for good. So it's a metaphor, obviously, but the thinly veiled metaphor is that following Jesus is inherently divisive. Many of you know that very well already, and you're still here. Well done. Now, some of us read these hardcore words of Jesus, and we want to kind of soften and arrange them into a teaching about like heart priorities, meaning, you know, like you just love Jesus the most in your heart. That's what he's getting at. But most scholars argue that Jesus is being quite a bit more frank. He's saying that for those of us that will have to choose between the family of God or the family of blood, you either pick the family of God or you cannot follow Jesus. So think about that and realize that in Jesus' culture, there was zero tolerance for a diversity of religious belief. To this day, if an Orthodox Jew converts to Christianity, a funeral is held to recognize that they have died to the family. And there are similar practices in devout Muslim homes. Some streams even observe an honor killing of those who de denounce Islam. In some countries, it's still a capital offense to convert from Islam to Christianity. So Jesus' call to family and the changing of priorities that that entails was a radical invitation. And though our culture is quite different today, I would argue that there are two reasons that Jesus' call to family is even more radical for you and I. The first reason is that, listen to this, Jesus does not critique or reinvent the collectivist approach to community. He simply teaches that his community has to become the primary community, but that a collectivist idea still applies. In other words, Jesus doesn't present a model for individualism in which the individual takes priority over the group and the desires and the happiness of the one always take precedence over the many. And that is wildly at odds with the American sensibility. To demonstrate, let me read an earlier quote again but I'm going to replace the term group with the phrase, the church, and see how this makes you feel as I read it. If in the church, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of the church and responsible to the church for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general, the individual person is embedded in the church and is free what, to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with the church norms and only if the action is in the church's best interest. The church has priority over the individual member. How does that make you feel? Weirded out a little or itchy, allergic? B believe me, I get it. 
part of my personality and wiring includes an intense aversion to anything I perceive to be outside control. I do not like to be told what to do. I hate homogeny. I hate groupthink. But Jesus' invitation isn't to control. His invitation is to self-sacrificial love for one another, which looks like anything but control. And Jesus' invitation isn't to homogeny, where we all kind of become the same thing and the same person. God has uniquely crafted you and I to make unique contributions in and to the family of God, not to disappear as drones into the herd. And Jesus' invitation certainly isn't to groupthink, where we all have to say and think the same things all the time. Read the Bible. There's a very clear and well-represented tradition of diverse thought and wrestling with doubts and working things out with differences intact before God, all in the context of community. But even with all that nuance, Jesus' invitation is to value others above yourself. That much is exceedingly clear. And not just valuing a, a worthy individual above yourself, but the entire family of God. For Jesus, being a child of God also means being a brother or a sister. One master apprentice of Jesus called Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, frequently employs this metaphor of adoption. The idea being that in a moment, you are brought into a family... God is now your father, but you also immediately become not just a child of God, but a sibling. And anyone who has been adopted or has adopted siblings can tell you that it's a mixed bag. It's both beautiful and painful. It's wonderful and it's complicated. So what does all this mean for us, for those of us who follow Jesus in the here and now, attempting to navigate this strange and messy concept of community? Community, we often say, is a spiritual discipline, meaning it's something that you have to practice, something that you get right and that you get wrong, something that the, you learn to do over time with success and failure, trial and error. But the Bible doesn't frame community in rigid ethical terms only. Jesus' vision for the church, with a capital C, is that we would become a family, Obviously, unpacking the term family, as we've already seen, requires a ton of work, but a family nonetheless. And nuanced though that term may be, there are some basic aspects of a healthy family on which nearly everyone, sociologists, psychologists, ordinary human people, and uh, the authors of the New Testament seem to agree in full. Like, to begin with, healthy families eat together. This is in no way a uniquely Christian idea, though it is certainly well represented in the New Testament. There is a veritable mountain of studies and data that confirms that families are healthier when they consistently gather around a dinner table on a regular basis. It's actually how what we now call the Lord's Supper or communion became central to the gathering of Jesus' early disciples, to get together around the table, share a meal, and share life. It's why we always have food and drink at our gatherings. It's not just because we like snacks. It gives us an excuse to stay a little longer, talk, connect, and be a family. It's why we always will, as long as the money doesn't run out, have food as a part of the Van City gathering. A healthy family eats together. A healthy family also spends time together. And notice that statement is in the general sense very clear, but vague in the specific sense. <laughs> We typically define for our Van City communities, spend time together as a deliberate, disciplined effort to come together on a planned, consistent basis to eat 
hang out and do the practices, spiritual disciplines, practices of emotional health. Inevitably, that feels canned and contrived to some of you. And to others, it provides welcome and glorious structured faithfulness. The older you get, the, the more crowded your life becomes, the more you realize that without discipline and planning and follow through, the harder it becomes to maintain meaningful relationships. When you're like a teenager or in your early 20s or when you're single or maybe even newlywed, it's relatively simple to make lots of time to hang out, go out, connect. A lot of it happens organically without any specific planning at all. You just find yourself in all kinds of social situations, often with the same people. But then you start to work more or you get a different job or you get more relationships or you get married or you have kids or you start school or whatever it might be. And you realize that if you want to stay close with a certain group of people, you have to work at it. Uh, the sitcom Friends depicts that season of life when you're a young 20-something, you're just effortlessly in one another's lives, relatively carefree and fun. And I was thinking this week about when asked why Friends has yet to experience the revival treatment and why it never will um, of other sitcom peers that it has. Uh, Matt LeBlanc, the actor who played Joey Triviani, he wisely observed this. This is a quote. That show was about a very finite period in your life between 20 and 30 when you're out of school but your life hasn't really started yet and you're finding your friends and your family and you're kind of finding your own way. When that period is over, it's over. They would have moved on from that period, so it just wouldn't be the same. So in other words, there is a deliberateness to faithful community and to simply spending time together. That's why for us in Van City Communities, the commitment is to meet once a week for a couple of hours around a table. That doesn't also have to mean that you go to the movies together every single weekend and that you go on a cruise together every summer or whatever. You can if you want, but it's about a simple and consistent commitment to sacrifice and share time. Doing one thing means you don't do another thing, and that involves community. But a healthy family eats together, spends time together, and also shares more than just time. They share their resources. There's this really beautiful picture in the book of Acts about the early community of Jesus as it was beginning to flourish, and the author notes this. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, all there are that, in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. For us, in communities, even in Van City communities, it often still looks that way. A group coming around someone in need to share finances or time or to help babysit or to pick up groceries or to offer a room or to make ends meet, whatever it might be. Remember, that does not mean that your community owes you extra finances or they owe you weekly babysitting or something like that. Every healthy adult has to learn boundaries, the best way to actually help one another in a given season of life. But it does mean that you're learning to come around one another in self-sacrificial love. When everyone is learning to do that well, it will often include sharing resources. A healthy family is also loving and affectionate with one another. In the New Testament, Paul commands disciples of Jesus to, and I quote, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, obviously, our culture is different, so you don't go around kissing people. 
But the point is that there was such loving affection there that Paul said, you should be warm in receiving to one another. I thought that, that was really beautiful. I hug the people in my community. I tell them, them that I'm happy to see them. There's kindness and fondness. Um, we text each other silly things in a group thread. Maybe your community does this as well. I genuinely enjoy it. I, th- I find it really funny. Um, remember, you don't have to have outrageous chemistry and be the best, closest friends to show loving kindness to one another and to treat one another warmly. There are people in this room that, as a general rule, I only see on a Sunday night, but who are loving and kind to me, warm and affectionate every time they see me. And that's one dynamic of this thing we call family. And we share not just resources and time and affection, but responsibilities as well. This is why in our basics class, we try to teach you guys how to all pitch in to contribute to something as basic as dinner or the idea that you all take turns cleaning up after dinner, or the idea that you do your best not to leave someone's house in utter ruin, or that you help bear the load of responsibility to even host or have community in the first place, which is itself an aspect of bearing one another's burdens. This means when someone gets a new job or has a breakthrough or starts therapy or gets healed of something or has a birthday, you celebrate, you throw a party, you commemorate those things, you congratulate one another, you actually mark the occasion. We have donuts. And the funny thing is that like, Uh, In our community, if anyone gets a new job, they have to bring donuts to the community. You don't have to do it that way, but it's funny. There's genuine celebration in the thread. Someone's like, hey, guys, I got this new job. It's going to be awesome. Everyone, oh, my gosh, answered prayer. So amazing. Praise God. And so excited for those donuts that you're going to bring. It's great. I encourage you to adopt that tradition. On the other hand, if someone is walking through pain and suffering, you grieve together. You pray for one another. You ask for updates. You stay up to date. You actually show concern and care. You ask what you can do to help. My community reaches out for prayer to one another for everything from like terminal illness to a kid's dentist appointment. And I love it. I I actually know that these people will pray for me when I ask them. A healthy family also learns to make decisions together. Maybe this sounds crazy to you. Um, That doesn't mean that everything you and your family does must pass the jury (laughs) of your community. It just means that as you become more a family of self-sacrificial love, you learn to ask for counsel and prayer and advice. And that could be a really beautiful thing. It also means, and hang on, here comes the deep water, that you hold one another accountable. Of all the radically subversive aspects of the New Testament paradigm for community, this one is perhaps most abrasive to the fragile modern Western sensibility. But in Jesus' paradigm for family, you actually hold one another accountable as you figure out how to follow Jesus together, which, yes, absolutely includes patience and grace and humility, and gentleness, and dealing with your own stuff when you call other people out? Of course. But in the New Testament, it also includes confrontation, and correction, and intervention. And even more than that, in fact, Jesus himself and the later writers of the New Testament actively teach that there are times when a person in a community can become so toxic or unhealthy or divisive that it's best to shut them out of the community until they repent. And there are actually examples of behaviors that might merit such an intense course of action. Sexual immorality is one of them. 
uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, lack of repentance for sinning against a brother or sister in Matthew 18, which also has an unwillingness to forgive on that list, teaching false doctrine, divisiveness, even laziness or an unwillingness to bear the responsibilities of the community. And to be clear, please listen, none of these refer to the basic moral failure that we all experience as we walk the road of discipleship. Most of us are guilty for some or all of these in the on and off trial and error sense of awkward learning to follow Jesus stuff. This is about deliberate unapologetic and ongoing unrepentant sin that reaches a toxic boiling point so intense that something has to be done. And that involves confrontation. It involves holding one another accountable. And that's the true challenge of faithfulness. Not calling one another out is not faithfulness. And a healthy family is faithful to one another. Now, Think about your church, your Van City community, or maybe for you, you're not in a community yet. That doesn't mean you don't have community. Maybe your circle of closest friends, whatever it might be. Can these things be said of you, that you eat together, that you spend time together, that you share resources, that you're loving and affectionate, you share responsibilities, you make decisions together, you hold one another accountable? And that doesn't mean that you're perfect or that you're an ideal model of these things all the time. But are you trying with success and failure to embody these attributes of a Jesus community? Not being complacent in the areas where you've yet to reach those things. If it sounds radical and over, top to you, over the top to you, that actually makes sense. The culture around you has trained you and me to understand nearly every avenue of life as individualistic in nature. So you get this idea of church as something that is for you. A lot of people think that it's just, uh, you know, uh, mincing words that we call what we're doing right now a gathering rather than a service. But the reason is that this is not a service that's being provided for you to come and consume. It's a get-together. We're actually a gathering family. And I think that that distinction matters. When you get this idea that church is for you to come and consume, you take what you like, you refuse what you don't prefer, you show up when you want, on your own terms, and only when and if it works for you. Sometimes people ask me why it's so deeply discouraging to me personally that people skip church just because it's sunny outside or because there's like a game on TV or whatever it might be, or that they show up to community but not the gathering, or that they show up to the gathering but not community, and that they don't do the practices or whatever it might be. They don't participate in a meaningful way. Honestly, that's not discouraging to me because I'm the pastor of the church. It's not discouraging to me because I want obedient drones or because my livelihood somehow depends on everyone doing it the exact way I want them to do it. It's honestly because all of those things reveal a very low view of the family of God as lesser than or ultimately unimportant or at least expendable and secondary. It reveals an individualistic disposition which is deeply at odds with Jesus' vision for a community of family faithfulness. Now, the difference between family and other forms of community is that you don't just quit your family. Now, of course, that does not mean I'm not saying, like, if you sign up for a Van City community, you, we stamp it in your blood and you're in it forever. Nothing like that. But what I mean is that the family of God, whether it's your Van City community or your close friends, your church as a whole, whatever, it's designed by, it's by design for long-term faithfulness. The people who stay for the long run 
are the people who grow and mature, and the people who bail don't. I wish it weren't that simple, but honestly it is. Last week we talked about this traditional cycle of communities. It usually begins with, uh, on the top right here, the honeymoon phase. Maybe not for all of you, but there's often a kind of like, hey, this is actually pretty cool. You get together, you have food. That part's pretty fun. If you have kids, it's like they're running around having a good time. You do the practices, people pray and they talk. It's like, man, this is pretty great. Maybe you cry and there's a breakthrough and it seems pretty beautiful. But eventually that kind of thing, you know, levels out. You hit a plateau and you start to be like, what are we even doing? It's not like it used to be. I care a lot less than I used to. And then you start to ask questions like, is this even the right community for me? Are we doing anything right? Should I just bail? And then most people do exactly that. They bail. They break from the community. But some people learn to accept it. They learn to accept that, oh, community by nature is imperfect. Um, it oscillates season of amazingness for, and seasons of not so greatness and frankly, seasons of badness. And then once you accept the nature of community, that it's flawed, it's imperfect, and that's the way it is, you can engage once again on the terms of the community, that it's not perfect, but you can still be a part of it, and then eventually reach a kind of healthiness and start the cycle all over again. You will likely go through that cycle again and again the longer you keep at it. And honestly, that's fine. That's the way that it goes. It's just life in the family of God. But most people, and maybe I'm being pessimistic, but most people abandon ship around the frustration and fear part. They break from the community. It's too challenging or scary, or it isn't the ideal. They have other options. They're, they don't have perfect chemistry with everyone in their community, and so they flake out. Most people do that. They bail. But the ones who stay are the ones who stand to grow and mature. Professor Joseph Hellerman writes this, spiritual formation, please listen, occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their abil ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. All of this because while family can be the place of deepest hurt, and you know this from your close friends, you know this from your, your immediate family, and you probably know this from your personal community. Last week I was asking, like, think about the people with whom you have the longest ongoing friendship, and then ask yourself, has that been painless or a, an emotional safe space for you, or has it been messy and painful and arduous, but also a true meaningful friendship? Family is the place of deepest hurt and the place of deepest healing. It doesn't take a community wizard to realize that the greatest joy and the greatest suffering in life are both irrevocably tethered to relationships. The authors of The Relational Soul write this, what does loneliness tell us about ourselves, be it chronic or acute, slight or significant? 
Loneliness is proof of our relational design. At the core of our being is this truth. We are designed for and defined by our relationships. We were born with a relentless longing to participate in the lives of others. Fundamentally, we are relational souls. We cannot not be relational. So this week, the idea is that you'll get together with your communities or some friends if you're not yet in one or you're listening on the podcast, head to practicingtheway.org and continue in the practice. You'll be working through material that we've adopted or adapted with our friends from Bridgetown, from Pete and uh, Gary Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Relationship. This week, it includes talking about expectations and listening. As always... The expectation is not slavish obedience. Do exactly what's in that curriculum or else. The invitation is simply get together and give it a shot. And I would humbly ask, try your best not to nitpick and tear it down or complain. Try to keep an open mind. Try to reserve judgment and just give it a shot. Doesn't mean it's going to be perfect or the best thing you've ever done. Just, it's just a helpful tool for spiritual formation with your community. Because the idea behind these practices, believe it or not, isn't to get you into one of our communities or to keep you in one of our communities. Really, the heart behind this whole thing is spiritual formation and healing. All of us need to understand that without relationships, in other words, without the family of God, we will not experience true spiritual formation and healing. That comes at a cost, of course, because... It's anything but tidy and painless, but that's the way it is. Love is very costly. Love is risky. And to truly learn the way of Jesus and to put his teachings into practice, you need more than just the people with whom you have great chemistry. Your closest friends with whom you have much in common, they can be your community, sure, but they aren't necessarily your community. Your community can be made up of close friends with whom you have great chemistry, but they don't have to be. Think about it this way. We typically describe our need for Van City communities like this. The Sunday gathering is part of our family rhythm, but it's pretty tough to have vulnerability and accountability with like 80 to 100 people during a time mostly made up of singing and teaching. But a dozen-ish people around a dinner table, that's much easier. Now, most of us don't ordinarily wander into the sanctuary and maintain a mental prerequisite that in order to be here at all or to participate, the entire room must be made up of people with whom we are similar and compatible in a deep, meaningful sense. No, we ordinarily, we expect, and I hope that we would hope there will be a diversity of age and experience and ethnicity and nationality and taste and style and personality. So with community, uh, with church family, in other words, we want to take a selection of that macro family and set it down in a home around a table. Could be chemistry and compatibility and similarity. Could be little to none of those things in the generic sense, but that's not what matters. What matters is someone next to you at the table who, for any and all of their difference, has said, Jesus is Lord, I'm in. And you have said and replied, yes, I believe Jesus is Lord too. I am also in. And on that premise, Jesus can and will build a family. But if we think we can somehow learn and grow in what it means to fully love God and love people without other people, I think we will be disappointed, not to mention disillusioned. You probably already realize on some level that your relationships with people impacts your relationship with God, for better or for worse. Think about it this way. The entire Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' own collection of core teachings, his manifesto, as it were, is about relationships. 
It's about getting angry with other people, forgiving other people, right sexuality with other people, integrity and faithfulness with other people, judging other people. The list goes on and on. Jesus understood and taught that our relationships with people are by design enmeshed in our relationships with God. So how in the world can anyone expect to live, live by the Sermon on the Mount without other people? This is why when asked, what's the most important commandment in the Bible, Jesus gives two answers instead of one. Love God and love other people. So Jesus has designed his way of life to make it impossible for us to go on being unforgiving or argumentative or rude or flaky or unkind or selfish with other people and then still somehow have a healthy private relationship with God. It just doesn't work that way. We can't somehow go from cynical and untrusting or wounded and passive-aggressive or immature or detached or lazy and then suddenly become people who have mature, thriving, emotionally healthy relationships with just God but not with people. If we want to be the kinds of people who are learning to see and own and work through all of that, we need each other. More specifically, we need a family. So with all that in mind, let me pray over the communities as we continue to step into the practice of community and family faithfulness. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.